Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a friend, Marco Demarellis, a partner at TCG. TCG is the new $700 million multi-stage investment firm dedicated to building consumer businesses. Marco, welcome to the podcast. Eric, thank you for having me. So Marco, why don't you give a little bit of the background on yourself, how you came to TCG and where you're focused on in TCG right now? For sure. So about in 2010, my two of my uh, three partners, there's four of us total, uh, got together to start a holding company called The Turning Group. Peter Chernin had previously been a co-founder of Hulu and seen this thesis around direct-to-consumer immediately impacting how uh, individuals and families were consuming entertainment. And as part of that, formed a bigger thesis in and around media brands and broader consumer technology. In 2012, they raised a significant amount of equity. My other partner, Mike, joined them, bringing a bunch of operating DNA and expertise to the team. And during the period that they were together from 13 to 18, they invested in over 70 companies across early stage seed through growth and even did control buyouts in businesses that you would know, uh, like Barstool Sports. In, in parallel, I was actually building my own growth equity and venture capital business at a large hedge fund. Uh, called BAM, where I did everything from, you know, thematic sourcing and building up a team, setting up a San Francisco operation, raising third-party capital, taking board seats, and really leading 14 or so core investments across five or six different end markets. And during that time, in parallel, got to know Jesse through a friend, Adam Bain, and uh, Rich Greenfield, who is a well-known media analyst when Rich actually invited Jesse to join a uh, event I hosted in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for an executive offsite. And uh, over time, when I was sharing deals and ideas with Jesse and they experienced significant liquidity events and selling auto media to AT&T for a billion two, we started kicking around the idea of joining forces together to build a much bigger, stronger business. And so I joined the three of them in 2019 and uh, TCG came together in 2018. During the uh, year of 2019, we raised uh, roughly 710 million in uh, outside capital to scale uh, the business, which was a totally independent investment firm with deep roots uh, in what the churning group was doing in its prior iteration. 700 million, how do you think about portfolio construction with a firm that big? Yeah, so we think about the world in terms of uh, a few different ways. One is the way that we attack markets and think about businesses and, and teams to back is very thematic. And so we'll do a lot of work in uh, industry to come up with a view that we think is nuanced and differentiated in fertility. The question we overlay on top of that is what is effectively the best risk reward in the space to express that view that we think would be in the best interest of uh, our investors and our team. And that means that using fertility as an example, you can roll up clinics like TA Associates and Lee Equity Partners have, have done in the past in a very profitable way. You can back growth businesses with large $30 million plus checks, or you can do traditional Series A where you have a different level of ownership uh, and risk reward that you're playing for without actually paying a growth price. And so you know, we think about it in terms of risk reward, but the way that it manifests itself in portfolio construction and expressing that view is 60% of our investments call it our minority in the sense that they're a mix of growth or venture. 20-ish percent of that I would put in traditional Series A investing. Uh, this is, you know, four on 12, rolling up the sleeves, early team, but product market fit and building an impactful business. So things like that, that we've led in the last year, our daddy is firm banking business, which we can get to, uh, or more, a little bit more mature, like shop shops, which is a three-sided live streaming marketplace. On the growth side, these are businesses where they're fairly well-scaled. It's typically represented about 40% of the portfolio and they're 
in an industry where we've developed what we think is a non-consensus view, and there's still a few turns of return to come. And so things like Zola in the wedding registry industry, which we can unpack, represent that in our portfolio. And, and over time, we expect that to be roughly 40% of our, our business. And uh, on the control side, it's really about risk reward as well, where we're expressing that view. And, and that looks like a majority investments where oftentimes there's you know, 10 plus years of founders will continue to have a, a shot on goal, but there's a mismatch in the capital structure or some sort of intricacy that makes it attractive for us to be a bigger, larger partner so that they can take a better swing on the back nine and, and play out their thesis. And, you know, our partnership, which we didn't mention, is a little bit different in that the majority of us have been career operators and uh, creatives. And, you know, there's me, who's more of the career investor, although building a venture and growth business, you could say, is operating in one one respect. Right. So we think we're particularly good at that. Are, are, are you guys uh, less ownership focused and more probability weighted multiples focused then? Yeah, I think uh, it's less about fixed constraints actually on either and more about where do we think the business can go from here and what are we playing for and making sure that that core return that we're underwriting comes from something that exists, right? In the case of like a Peloton, just to use that example, it's making sure that you believe there's a couple hundred thousand units of bikes in the world today. And the core return comes from, you know, that number growing to a million plus over time. And I actually think it can be 3 million plus over time of an insult base, then having the next leg of probabilities to your point being new products like treadmill and a few of the things that they've announced and the next leg of that stool. But I think for us, we think about where are we taking the risk and is that the right way to think about risk? One of the things we've been going back and forth on is, is your, your latest thesis, which is uh, owning a life stage, i.e. getting married, having a baby, uh, end of life, i.e. funerals. Unpack that thesis, uh, how it evolved and, and where that might lead you. Yeah. And I actually think if you maybe step back a little bit, we've seen this at a macro level across verticals for consumer, right? So even in gaming, you could think of a business like Roblox as really owning that cohort of young Gen Z individuals for a finite period of time, but that's a very, very profitable, big business as, as I think you know. And so, you know, in our portfolio, the way that we've expressed that uh, initially is through our investment in, in Zola. And so I've been an investor over the last few years across a couple of different rounds. And what actually got me excited is if you look at the first generation of these businesses, things like Wedding Wire, The Knot, Martha Stewart, they're actually all ad-based models, which have inherently a subset of challenges, let alone like the valuation multiples and what, what they actually trade on and what they're worth. And if you think about these newer platforms that have been built to own this life stage of, of weddings for the cohorts that exist today, which are largely millennials and Gen Z, Gen X, Zola, the way it operates, is a much different approach, right? It's digital first. It's mobile at every step. It's simple. It's enabled by dropship. They provide guidance and community, and it's all integrated in one place, whether it's features like guest list or website building to closing the loop on things like invitations. But before you even get there, the thing that is really, really special about Zola is unlike Wedding Wire and The Knot, there's a much more superior business model, and it's even you know, compared to traditional e-commerce, right? So traditional e-commerce is, you know, if you look at businesses like ASOS in the fast fashion world, they have 30% you know, 30 plus return rates, right? Because you're just buying stuff online, trying it, and then shipping it back. That crushes your gross margins. Because my partner and I have actually picked out the things that I want Eric and his friends to buy for me, there's a much, much, much lower return rate. And so you have a better gross margin profile. And if you look at the stocks that are publicly traded and, express that in their commentary with analysts like William Sonoma, you'll see that the highest margin lever of their e-commerce business is actually their registry business. The other thing is if you think about one of the more interesting things we focus on is ramping paid acquisition. We think we know marketing really well. And if you think about traditional e-commerce, right, it's hard to drive purchase behavior because if you think about most models, they're largely driven by paid acquisition spend. But because I'm inviting Eric to my wedding, there's built-in intent where my pushing out of that invite to my registry is actually pushing you to buy on Zola. And so the marketing equation is much more nuanced, but in a more profitable way. 
And then the other thing is if you look at businesses like a stitch fix, right? They're seasonal assortments. They change the genes at every turn of, of the months and flavor. And that leads to a people-heavy operation, right? And if you think about what people are buying on the wedding side, it's more of an evergreen assortment in e-commerce sense, meaning it's blenders and home goods and things that are generally staples. And because of that, the infrastructure costs of running a Zola hybrid marketplace are meaningfully lower because you don't have 60, 70 people in your merchandising department turning SKUs. And then the other part is obviously, you know, the cash flow, right? And so, you know, just to simplify it a bit, a good way to potentially get divorced is to do your registry the night before. (laughs) Most people actually do it months in advance. And most of the gift purchasing happens four or five months in advance. And Zola collects the cash when Eric buys me a gift uh, before the gifts are shipped. So they're building a float similar to Airbnb where there's a prepaid component effectively um, before going cash out of pocket. And so when you combine that hybrid marketplace, you have a very, very good contribution margin core, positive core business that you can then layer on these other things to answer your question and own the life stage. So what are the other things, right? And I, so Zola knows that I pushed Eric and my 150 friends to my website. They know what you bought me and they have my social graphs. So because they've seen those emails uploaded and when you buy that for me to close the loop, instead of doing thank you notes in the traditional sense, they already have the data that connects what Eric bought, when he bought it to that specific good. And it simplifies the thank you process to a much more drag and drop like model where I'm not handwriting notes and tracking down all Macy's and Bed Bath and Beyond receipts to see, you know, what people got me and when, right? It's actually all there. And so if you look at the attach rate, what I think of as a new business, it is significantly higher uh, than most people at all expect for something like invitations, which by the way, have 70% plus gross margins and have been very, very profitable standalone businesses. They already have this captive intent. And then if you think about things like, you know, just to share that, I think has been recently announced businesses like honeymoons, right? That's like, you know, an 11 billion plus market. The average couple in the U S today spends over 3000 plus Zola's cohorts are meaningfully higher. And so you also have a favorable margin profile that's integrated with the platform. You know, and if you look at how the NPS of this business, 90% plus of the couples that have registries with Zola actually say they'd book a honeymoon with them. And so part of that product, you know, and that's one of many things to come. But I think when we think about owning a life stage, it's really nuanced because you want to own it in a very contribution margin positive way that creates these little loops on the subsequent businesses you built, um, some of which we've described. To, to better understand the, the, the thesis is that, that you, if you own one life stage, you can you wedge into owning other ones or that uh, that life stage is so important that you can get better margins on it or, or what is it about the life stage specifically that makes these better or the lock-in is higher or what is it that makes these better businesses? I think it's the life stage combined with the market, right? So if you look at brick and the three largest players historically in the market have been Bed Bath & Beyond, Macy's, Crate & Barrel, right? Like I'm not sure the last time any of your friends have gotten married have been to one of those places, uh, let alone is willing to lie on the bottom of the floor and physically scan SKUs to upload into an online infrastructure that doesn't have APIs and can't integrate with others. And so the market structure of these players who traditionally own 20% plus of what is a $10 billion plus product market is fundamentally changing, right? So on average, a little bit more than 2 million couples in the U.S. get married they on average invite 135 people as guests and the average product registry is 5,200 plus depending on the survey. So if you take those 2.2 million, you times it by the 5,000 plus, you have 10 billion in actual spend that is now totally shifting. And so what we look for to own that life stage is what's a better solution for couples that more, more holistically delivers around the needs of this millennial family. And for us, it's dropship enabled, it's convenient, it's digitally native. And also then, you know, it's great to be all those things, but it's also great to have a contribution margin positive business that can be much broader. And so 
the way that the registry economics work enables you to build that mind share in a, in a positive way while then building out other products to capture the, the much broader lifespan. And it's not about necessarily growing with the couple for six to 12 years and becoming, you know, a fully integrated family management tool. There's nothing like that. But if you look at what happens in a wedding, it's already over a hundred billion of spend. So buying the ring, 10 billion, right? Book vendors, registers, guests, saving the day, buying dresses, tux, going on the honeymoon, the registry. Forget furnishing a home and throwing a baby shower and doing a register there. That's a lot more in spend. But when we think about what's the most profitable wedge to own the core $100 billion market as the market structure is evolving to business like Solo. And, and let's go deeper on that, on that industry in general. Like, like how would you say the industry has evolved in the past decade and, and where is it likely to go? And then why is it an industry that so many VCs have, uh, have passed over? Like, what, did they, what do they not get or, or appreciate? Well, I think it's, you know, most VCs, uh, the reality is co-parenting and the way the world works today is very different than the way that most VCs grew up. And so if you talk to most partners at firms, I'm not sure they did their own registry. But if you know how uh, relationships today work, and, you know, my partner's a co-founder of a, a company that I'd like to plug down the road on this podcast she's she's not doing this alone right we 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 have much more parity in our relationship and the expectation is on me to contribute across the household and so i actually think the user experience in today's venture market has created this perception of well i don't get that because i never had to do it and so that combined with the fact that on the surface people have a framework of well this is a one time acquisition you know I think that's created this historical consensus, in my opinion, lazy view that, you know, one-time acquisition marketplaces are less interesting than multi, you know, and I, I would take the other on that. And I have a bunch of case studies, but if you look at other, there are companies like Redfin, which, you know, one-time acquisition, you're buying a house effectively, you, you probably get married around the same number of times or used car marketplaces like Carvana that are now public you know, I, I think are good case studies on how to take the other side of that bet in a non-consensus way. And I think that's what some people have missed over time. And I think hasn't happened in the past is drop shipping for the 1.0 generation of businesses was not a thing, right? Until five, six years ago, most of these brands that are actually on Zola today weren't drop shipping because that wasn't part of the industry structure. What do you think about Joy or, or, or some of these other uh, approaches that are trying to uh, take the market? Yeah, I, I don't, to my knowledge, Joy doesn't have a registry business. And kind of that's what I mean when you think about what is the right wedge, right? And so for us, when, when the average American is spending 5,200 plus in ASP on a products that are sold through a registry, it, it suggests that there's, you know, your margin is my opportunity, right? And, and that market structure around product registries, if you do it the right way, is the right economic entry. I think the reality is it's very, very hard to do. You have to build a proprietary dropship technology that is integrated with payments that has a data platform that speaks to, you know, I think there are now over 150,000 SKUs on Zola with, you know, 900 plus registered brands and, you know, retail partners like Crate and Barrel who have publicly moved on thousands of SKUs to their infrastructure using it effectively like AWS because they haven't built this stack. And so I'm not, the last I looked at Joy, they didn't have that. And, um, you know, we think the businesses that do are the ones that will accrue the most value over time. You, you also mentioned that you uh, have a deep and your team have a deep understanding of, of paid marketing. What, what do you think y'all uh, understand that uh, that others don't or, or don't appreciate as much? Yeah, I don't know if it's that don't appreciate as much, but we, we focus on it a lot. And so if you look at uh, the historical investments of, of our team, the majority of those businesses were not acquired via uh, 
not acquiring customers via paid marketing, right? So uh, my partner, Jesse, led a, uh, an investment in Headspace um, over five years ago. At the time, they had acquired you know, over 150,000 subscribers with little to no paid marketing. That's if you think about what Barstool has in this captive fandom that is highly engaged, they can reach a scale, actually, in some cases, turn profitable without needing to be dependent on these other channels that generally rise, you know, in lockstep with ad spend. And so a lot of the the businesses that we are passionate about aren't competing for the same audiences on Facebook or Instagram or Google, because in our personal view, finding the levers around organic growth and driving nuance and virality and buzz is much, much more interesting. And so a good example of that is um, a business called Meat Eater. They have a show on Netflix. They have over four podcasts. They have an ONO website and a big social presence. But uh, Steve Rinella basically built a what was initially a, a hunting lifestyle business with incre- incredible uh, authenticity, used content to drive commerce. So that purchasing of branded retail items, purchasing of hunting gear, we acquired a company called First Light, uh, paid educational classes and how to related to the activities of this community and how they wanted to grow, but using his own content business to act as the top of funnel for e-commerce. And so effectively decreasing the level of paid advertising or paid social that they would need to do to scale. And when I say, you know, we've learned to appreciate and leverage those nuances, it's a pretty consistent theme across our portfolio. And because of those insights, frankly, and, you know, in, in some cases like media really, building the business plan together. You know, in the case of Headspace, I think we were the first institutional investor and subsequently meaningfully invested each and every round. You know, those learnings are, uh, in my opinion, kind of priceless. And the way that we leverage them to to make the entire uh, firm's portfolio better is, is, I think, something that sets us apart. Totally. So, so we talked about uh, the wedding industry. Let, let's talk about fertility. Uh, and, and that's the other part of your owning a life stage, uh, you know, having a baby. Why don't you talk about your, your thesis there and, and uh, how you've invested and looked in the space? So I've been focused in and around the space for some time. You know, we tinkered on uh, medical tourism marketplaces in and around IVF uh, years ago to uh, exploring and helping my wife uh, when she was starting KindBody in the early days to backing a business called Daddy earlier this year, which is a men's health company today where the core offers FDA licensed at-home fertility tests for sperm storage and analysis. That really looks to their initial wedge is providing men with this simple, accessible way to understand your own reproductive health. And so what does that even mean, right? Like most people who've started to play in this space know that the day you're born as a woman is the day you have the most eggs in your life. And the slope of your ovarian reserve looks like a downward shaping curve. And so you see degradation over time, which impacts live birth rates and leads to other effects. But what most people don't know is that the slope of a, a male curve also is steep. It just is less steep, but knowing that slope can impact your decisions and life choices and male factor infertility, depending on the study, impacts um, your success as leading to a live birth, whether it's through art or through natural causes, art being assisted reproductive therapies. And so a big part of our thesis was, look, you know, you have this increasing need, right? Couples are getting married later in life and starting up families later in life, combined with this larger social acceptance surrounding art, these assisted or alternative reproductive therapies. And male fertility has not only been underfunded, but has been kind of a captive cause for a lot of the challenges that have happened uh, for couples looking to have their first uh, or subsequent child. And so the change in awareness and intent has created this market shift where a lot of the supply is coming online because historically, if you were a uh, male looking to conceive, you only found out that you were contributing to the problem 
often, most often after you've paid tens of thousands of dollars for your partner uh, to go through an IVF treatment cycle. So you've pumped your partner with hormones. You've gone through the emotional financial and financial burden and psychological burden of trying to retrieve eggs. Um, and then, you know, you have challenges post that process because of what you see in your semen analysis. And so we felt that there was a real need to develop a premium brand and value proposition uh, that was much more convenient for the other party that, you know, in a world of co-parenting is also needed to build a family, right? And so I think our view, which was a little bit non-consensus at the time, was that this will be a much more significant market. The existing market is the couples that are participating in art and embryo preservation and men who are either you know, curious about their fertility or participating in um, sperm banking separate from art. But in reality, when you look at the data of the underlying business, the majority, many of the people who have expressed who they are to make us build a better or consumer focused value prop for them don't fall in those buckets, which is, which is really, really interesting to see. And so I think when we thought about the market, we thought a little bit about what is a contribution margin positive recurring service that is differentiated as a wedge. So in this case, you know, when you're doing sperm banking, it's recurring in nature. It's a better service because traditionally you have to go to a clinic or center, which means you miss work and you put on a gown and you often watch softcore porn and then you excrete into a cup. Having something in the comfort of your home with on par uh, preservation rates is a much more convenient, let alone affordable solution, which daddy is a fraction of the cost of the traditional visit to one of those centers. And so we felt the price to value combined with how the market was changing, combined with you know, what is daddy's longer term roadmap, which is a much broader family planning tool that's data driven, uh, is pretty special. And just to touch on that last bucket, you know, when you get your fertility report back and you see your sperm swimming under the, the microscope, they are actually classifying those uh, factors for you, right? So factors in the broadest sense are, are everything from pH to head shape to motility. And they don't do all of those factors today, but there's a subset that they do. And when you think about the next generation of, of IVF, it's a form called ICSI, which without getting too technical and teaching a bio class here, they basically take one sperm, put it in the egg and cut off the tail. And in uh, many cases that lead to better live births. And because of that, you know, if you could potentially not, again, not that they do that today, but if you're setting up a business and infrastructure where you're letting people know this information, you're enabling them to make better decisions and better have better relationships because they're not putting their partner through another cycle, which can be financially stressful and emotionally stressful and uh, hopefully leads to better outcomes. And so while that is in the early days, we think it is a very differentiated very long-term data-driven family planning business that is going to have a big impact on the ecosystem. So we're, we're talking about fertility. You know, there are uh, companies that have sort of taken different approaches. Uh, there are, you know, people who are building, you know, IVF clinics. There's sort of modern fertility and, and their approach. There are people who are building sort of B2B, uh, you know, benefit products. Um, how do you think about the different players in the space or what sort of different beliefs do they have about the world or what different approaches in, uh, in building big fertility businesses? Yeah, I think so. When we think about it, there's a couple of factors, but because we care about price to value and we care about unit economics and serving the underserved, that really led to this investment and thesis in, in Daddy because there's this recurring nature component and a lot of nuances in both the economics and then where the product can scale to. On uh, the clinic side and some of the other things that you referenced, you know, generally the lower margin businesses, so things like brokerages have historically been less interesting to us. We're a consumer focused firm. Things that we feel are, you know, a lot of businesses are making, say, an AMH test. And we think that if you're taking a test that can be done from a Quest and a LabCorp and, you know, dressing it up differently, that's great. And you're making it more accessible. But when we think about the unit economics longer term, we find different types of models that are more interesting. And while I haven't looked and seen every clinic, you know, my wife, Joanne, uh, is, you know, a co-founder of Kind Body. And I think one of their insights in the early days was 
a way to uh, not only change the economic equation for patients, meaning bring down the cost, but deliver the most care and remove the paternalism and some of the other challenges that when you survey women who've been through this, uh, they faced. It's, it's really building this for women by women brand and then being in the provision of services. And that is a very, very difficult thing for a startup to do because there's a lot of licensing requirements around that. You have to, in, in the case of uh, fertility, right? Like if you're in the provision of services, that means you have REIs on staff, which are reproductive endocrinologists. You know, that is akin to going to vet school in terms of the limited pool that uh, exists in the U.S. And those are very special people uh, that do a lot of great work and have paid a lot of dues. So convincing them to, you know, flip a cash flow stake personally in a clinic that they either own or will own over time for a liquid seed equity is not an easy thing to do. And so if we focus a lot and if you're in the provision of services with this roadmap, are you doing it with the right people and the right approach in a way that is consistently building value on both sides, meaning for the patient and then also for the, the brand? And, um, you know, we think that there's a lot of interesting businesses out there doing that, and it's going to be a fascinating space to watch. The other space uh, in the own the life stage uh, space is, uh, is funerals or end of life. Um, so why don't you talk about your, your interest there? People have tried to build a business there for quite some time. Maybe you could talk about, you know, what's happened there or why, why it hasn't happened there and, and where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, so death care broadly as an ecosystem is just fundamentally broken, yet highly attractive, right? In the sense that it's large, you know, there's 20 billion of spend that goes through that market. There's growing demand. It's recession proof. Unfortunately, there's today roughly 2.7 million deaths per year, and that continues to grow. It's been highly fragmented in the sense that unlike other businesses for consumers, the mom and pop intricacies of the 20,000 funeral homes that own and operate 85% of, of these assets has created a really bad experience, right? You know, they're opaque in pricing. They can be predatory at times. They can, you know, use that pricing to drive profitability. If you've looked at rolling up any of these, they have 40% plus EBITDA margins. And because of that, opaque and market structure that's protected on a sub-muni basis, meaning the restrictions in parts of Long Island are different than parts of New York. In different states, you can have a retort, which is where you burn the bodies on site with a uh, cemetery and others you can't, creates a lot of nuances that has actually not served to help the industry or, you know, it's kept private equity out historically and that's made it be run by these legacy incumbents that are typically third or fourth generation families that have no incentives to change. It takes a special person to want to be a mortician. Uh, I don't know if you spent time with Eddie, but they are typically, let's just say they have that position for a reason, and I encourage you to. And what's happened in the U.S. over time that, that really drove my interest in the space is, you know, I have a friend who owns one of the largest funeral roll-ups in, in the Bible Belt. And what they started to talk about when we were having dinner was actually this shift in cremation representing the most significant issue facing the industry, arguably, ever. And so what that meant for him is that most of the homes that they were owning and operating were built for funerals, not cremations. And when you look at how the market has changed, so in the U.S., roughly, you know, in the 90s, call it 95, 21-ish percent of deaths were cremations. And last year, it was a, roughly 52 percent, depending on the numbers you look at. And if you look at countries like Japan and Switzerland, they're actually over 98 percent cremations. And I think the U.S. will rise to 80 percent plus. And so the, the, the thing I couldn't shake at night was how broken this experience is for the consumer, how much the market is evolving and where we are, you know, as an inflection point for what that means for building a new business in the space. And so, you know, initially we, my thinking was really focused on what's the best way to do it. Right. And so everything from incubating a D2C business that we think does this in a better way to looking at doing more majority investments with where you can build a consumer brand on top of a 
existing asset that has the right licensing and infrastructure for you to deliver on that promise to a family to even, you know, natural burials and ash spreading. And um, what we found is that there's a better way to go. And, you know, we are actually, when you think about, you know, the legacy you live, most people, if you survey them, they're not necessarily sold on going back home, whether that's to Westchester or, or what you talked about, which is, you know, where your family's relocated, right? And so the secular shift in the U.S. has created this um, disassociation of identity from just the town you were, say, going to elementary school in. And that's created a, a big opportunity. And without oversharing a deal that's unannounced, we found that um, using that and tying where a person celebrates and has an end-of-life experience to a more iconic region in a much more sustainable way, think things like ash spreading, is a much more attractive value prop for both a family, right? So instead of being buried on a highway next to, uh, you know, if you look in New York, when I'm looking out my window, you, you can't really get a burial plot for a reasonable cost, right? There's tens of thousands of dollars in Manhattan. And uh, what we found is that there's a better way to solve that price to value equation for consumers. And I'm excited to announce uh, what we will be investing in, you know, over the months to come. But I, uh, you know, you'll be the first to know. I, I feel like we should we should do it together with the company. Perfect. So when I think about other things that could potentially fit into this um, this uh, thesis, is is finding a life partner uh, in that? And I'm, I'm curious how you view sort of uh, the dating market uh, market generally. Yeah, I think it's pretty special to see how if you think about some of these trends, right? So like co-parenting and, and gender parity actually expresses itself through really special dating businesses like Bumble, where the power dynamic has been shifted, right? And we actually are huge believers that that is creating a new set of companies that uh, will better serve the needs of, of a couple if the engineer who designed it and potentially was most likely not that woman, right, or, or of that psychography. And so we, we're very excited about subscription products like that that sell a real need in that life stage. I think the tricky thing with dating is when you think about the other businesses we're talking about, like whether it's ARPU, right, or ASP, you know, whether it's the 5,000 plus basket size and what that means for contribution margin or potentially a higher number in what people have historically spent on traditional funerals, like the margin structure is important to uh, driving long-term value. And a lot of times these brands haven't, on the dating side, I've found, don't have the leverage to price in that way, which doesn't benefit the venture investors in, in the way that they may think about the life stage. Are, are there any other stages that you could see or spaces that you could see joining this thesis? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot. So we talked briefly on, on, on gaming with businesses like Roblox, and I, and I think that's really special. Historically, there have been brands built in and around even things like sports, right? So if you look at a business like Barstool Sports, that uh, if you think of what Howard Stern was for um, initially really college-age Gen Z millennial audiences, they built that in a really special way. And most people generally are of that age in and around the college demographic. And so I think there's a bunch in media brands that can be done well. The question comes down to, is that monetizing in a way that is attractive, right? And so, you know, we don't really back ad-supported businesses, and I, I'm not sure those are best built for venture scale and outcomes, but there are nuances around companies like Barcel where you have tens of podcasts now and a big O&O presence. You have events, right, and merchandise, and those are big standalone P&Ls. So events are things like Rough and Rowdy in the case of Barstool. They even have a subscription business called Barstool Gold that has done phenomenally well. And so when you think about building this diverse, simple, yet organic content to commerce model that owns a live stage, I think they're actually a really special case study as well. 
we could talk about this for, for days. Let's talk about shop shops and why you got so excited about, about that business and, and the broader space uh, generally. Yeah. Do you know much about it? No, uh, no, please, uh, please introduce it. The way that they came to market was really around this cross border e-commerce application that sells products on live held on live streaming events. Now they also do replays and other events, but initially live streaming at retail stores. So if you think about the best next generation of brands, right? Like a business like Everlane or Warby Parker, or even higher end merchants like a theory, they barely have the CapEx in Soho for one or two stores. They're not going to build out a large footprint in Beijing or mainland China, but they want to tap that market for e-commerce because it's the largest in e-commerce, much larger than Soho, but sorry uh, to my New Yorker, and it's the fastest growing. And so historically, the way that these businesses have been selling into uh, those consumers is through live streaming. And most of it happens on Chinese-owned assets like Tmall or Taobao Global, where uh, it's a person in a city live streaming in their parents' room and laying out all of their Warby Barker glasses or lookalikes on the bed and putting that on their uh, WeChat mini program. And what most consumers struggle with is they want to own that brand, but they want you know a higher fidelity experience, right? They want to touch and feel and have an interactive component to it with somebody that is either a key influencer or is higher fidelity in the sense that making sure it's authentic. And what Shop Shops crack the code in is building this three-sided marketplace. So it's not just brands and consumers. There's actually a host component to it. And that's really unique because it also means that Shop Shops acts as a labor and credentialing system. So when the business started, the first host resembled something called a Daigo. And without getting into Chinese market structure, these are groups of, of what has historically been women that leave the mainland and actually go out, procure goods that their clients want and bring them back. It's historically been a gray market, but if you Google Daigo's and Shiseido, the Japanese skincare brand, you'll see that it's a very well-known thing because the way that the regulation has changed has now led to a massive drop in you know, Shiseido sales into China. And what Shop Shops came about with, which is really almost like a host product that let those people do their business in a better way. And that's where the credentialing came in. And so they're setting them up with the brand. In this case, it's a Chinese national or Chinese American that uh, would go down to Theory or Everlane or a store in Soho and stream at 8 a.m. in New York. It's 8 p.m. in China. And they'd stream U.S. to China. They do a, a session that's curated with the brand's consent and with the brand's influence. And that's pretty special because if you look at the larger businesses, even the publicly traded ones historically like Michael Kors, when they actually went into these markets to tap them, they talk about in their transcripts the lessons learned. And one of the two biggest lessons learned are it led to massive price erosion and degraded brand quality. And that's because they couldn't control the channel effectively. And so brands pay a significant take rate to shop shops to effectively do that because they are comfortable with the fact that it is not cannibalizing their existing business since all of these sales have largely been net new. And so it, over time, right, it's been really special to see shop shops, you know, host these events, get millions of views, build a multi platform products. So they now have their own standalone app. They have a business on Taobao. They have a WeChat mini program, partnerships with all the large streaming assets. And seeing merchants come back and stick with them in a way that has continued to scale GMV and fairly contribution margin positive has been special. And how have you viewed uh, e-commerce or e-commerce enablement more broadly as a as a VC? Is, is that uh, a space that you've you've been looking at or, or or find interesting in the future? For sure. You know, a few years ago, I I worked on uh, carving out a business initially from Flextronics that became Auto. Uh, that company today is called Bright Machines. Uh, they are led by the old Autodesk leadership team, 
And the way that we thought about e-commerce uh, infrastructure is really, in that case, expressed through if you're Nike and you want to spin up a new product line, but you can't build a, another factory in a, an XYZ country and hire hundreds of thousands of low-cost labor to do it for a variety of reasons, how do you flip that from a CapEx outlay to an OpEx outlay? And that is manufacturing as a service. So leasing effectively a smarter machine, that's hence bright machines, that gives you not only more control to scale up and scale down with skew production and shifts in, in, in the product roadmap, but also a uh, more viable economic model in a world that's a tight labor market while enabling you to do the right thing has been one way that we've expressed it. And Bright Machines has done phenomenally well. The team there continues to build software on top of the hardware that they give to these manufacturers. And they work across consumer products, everything from electronics to firewall hardware to uh, autos to healthcare devices. You know, manufacturing as a service has been historically, you know, a good way that we've, I've expressed that in the past. You know, we've seen um, this sort of Warby Parker for X moment where VCs were funding sort of everything that looked like Warby or, or Dollar Shave Club for, for different categories. How have you viewed that uh, sort of D2C space, uh, space broadly? Like, where is it interesting? Yeah, so I'd say, like, there's, there's a couple factors we look at, um, and maybe, you know, I could talk about those and, and talk about some of the spaces that I think is, is still emerging and interesting. And so... I think about um, market structure, right, and margin as a really important setup for success. And so you brought up Dollar Shave Club, and what was special there is, you know, Gillette and Schick make these blades for six cents on the dollar, and they resell them for two seventy. And so you have that huge spread as a brand to play with in delivering a better price to value. And that is not true of every category. The other thing that is not true is the way that patents work and the way that market share has historically been driven with back way back in the day when Dubin was first starting building that business, it was historically really 90% plus Gillette and Chick. And so I think that creates opportunity, particularly when you have a margin profile like that. And in the case, uh, since you brought it up, Dollar Shave Club, it was really, you know, he was doing his own commercials, shaving in Central Park, starring in his own you know, go to market plan. And I think that level of scrappiness and authenticity is replicated by few. It is replicated by, you know, great leadership at, at things like Glossier, but, you know, it's really, really hard to do in an authentic way. And so not every category does have that. I do think more broadly, there are categories like within health and wellness, whether it's collagen or morning recovery, product and hydration or brands around a non-alcoholic movement and a different preference set for Gen X, Gen Z, and millennials, like whether that's kin or otherwise, there's a lot of opportunity there. But within the same category, reinventing it with a marketing veneer is not attractive. And I think we've historically not focused on those types of businesses. We focused on ones that have different characteristics. And so a couple of ones that we think are particularly interesting are where there is repeat buying in the right market structure with the right margin profile. So you mentioned the razor blade businesses, but whether it's Quip or Meandies or Glossier, um, you know, on the subscription side, that makes things incrementally more interesting. The right way to think about simplicity in your product offering, I think is special. Not being afraid of coupling digital and physical experiences to drive the flywheel. So you know, the SIL, Stadium Goods, right? Like Stadium Goods is a hybrid online and retail model from the beginning. Uh, so they combine what's really an elevated customer experience with sneaker resale. And, and I think developing omni-channel in the right way definitely is a differentiator. And so there are factors like that where we think our lessons learned in scaling these consumer businesses. And while, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes, and we, we are aware of, of kind of the nuances in it. But at the same time, to your point, like growth looks different for each company. There's no one size that fits all. And so when to expand the team, which is critical, 
is an important nuance. And, and I think, you know, oftentimes the categories that we avoid, when you look at the factors that we've talked to, they haven't, in our opinion, approached those questions in the right way. And so when we think about direct to consumer, we actually think that maybe what's less interesting is some of the lower hanging fruit in the product categories, but what is actually interesting is serving a more underserved need. So uh, if you think about like a direct to consumer subscription experience that's peeling off of Facebook or off of a community, that's interesting to me. So a good example is Chief, if you're familiar with that business, clearly very underserved in the communities that they're building for women leaders of organizations across types, but they're doing it with the right economics and that they have a high ASP and really strong retention because they're actually serving an unmet need. They're not selling you XYZ good, which you could have gotten at a similar price and a similar value some other way. And so I actually think I pivoted my thinking a little bit towards those classes of companies and in a way, it's almost owning a life stage, right? Totally. Another space you, you've thought a lot about is, is consumer health more broadly uh, beyond uh, fertility. How have you seen, or wh- where have you looked there? Where is interesting to you? What's not interesting to you? How do you sort of think about the rise and future of consumer health? Yeah, and so I, I think there's a, a lot here. Um, you know, I think the most interesting thing at a macro level is that like retail media and even travel, right? Healthcare is on this cusp of a 10 year digitization wave that is going to, in my opinion, transform the way that products and services are discovered, are marketed, are sold, and then also driving down the cost and improving the experience. And so if you have that lens, the question then becomes what is the right way to play it and where are opportunities. And so we found that there are a couple examples where in healthcare, there's systemic underconsumption of certain services because of these consumer pain points, right? And so if you think about orthodontics or dermatology or hearing or hormone therapy, they're very low penetrations because of how much friction is in the system, whether it's from a price or value or ease of use or experience. And so we've looked at those macro end markets, including fertility, to find ways that we can kind of back teams where they're lowering costs for better fixed cost allocation, right? So if you have a more efficient service model like telemedicine, that's one example of how to do it, where they're increasing convenience, right? Whether it's an on-demand model, that better caters to a certain patient population, like a city block, which we're not investors in, but we think about those models a lot. Or you can really scale content and through modern marketing, better educate people who don't see their orthodontist or who don't think about hormone therapy as a way to solve uh, a consumer pain point. And so, you know, we focus on the consumer side of backing those teams and brands that stand for solving those things in a way that also stands for trust and lowering the costs and the, um, you know, emotional burden of of a lot of those pain points. And we think, you know, we're in early innings of that trend. And I think you'll see a lot more there in the years to come. Is there anywhere even brought in that in in consumer that we haven't discussed uh, any subspace or or category or or type of business that you're looking for or or particularly excited about or could be excited about soon? There's a few. So when we think about B2B2C businesses, right? So companies that have almost had a SaaS-like product that use the vertical ownership they have and create a network around that, that pivots to becoming a marketplace, right? And so one example of this that's been thrown around is like Airbnb's host calendar is effectively a software-like product that has built this network. And then they built this two-sided GNV-like marketplace on top of it. Ariba on the procurement side is another example. There are a bunch of analogs in travel. We started to see it in e-commerce where in the case of shop shops, you're delivering a better product to a host community. And that's created this network almost like as a service component, which we're particularly interested in um, because it almost has a recurring foundation that's built in. 
I think in parallel and broader content, you know, we are spending a lot of time in uh, and around native audio and other types of content networks. So whether they're purpose built for AirPods and products and uh, subscriptions related to that, um, we we feel that uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunity around this form factor shift. And then in, in, outside of the one area in healthcare we didn't talk about is the patient experience. That actually creates a much more defensible uh, provision of service, right? And so we talked a little bit about, you know, part of the value in kind body is changing the power dynamic where you're providing uh, for women by women experience that removes some of the paternalism in that industry. We think that is a very defensible thing for a brand to do. And we look to back teams with that uh, level of authenticity. And then in broader health and wellness, I mentioned collagen and superfoods, but I think related to that is the best models we've seen have either had some sort of Gen Z or youth driven culture brands. So things, whether it's things like, um, you know, Kyra TV, right. Or other naturally viral products like recess, we've spent a lot of time there and um, related to the people who are building those brands, they're creator economy tools. And so chartable fit plan, carrot businesses like that, you know, we made an investment in Cameo earlier this year to express that. Um, and it's led us down a, a um, really interesting place to invest. And we think personality as a platform is going to be a thesis that compounds over time. So not just things like Marie Kondo or Meat Eater or Food 52, but Perfect Keto and Bigger Pockets and Huda Beauty. We're spending a lot of time there. So if there are any special people building platforms, you know, this is a uh, request to uh, spend time with you. We've been doing a lot of, of that over the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, we think we've learned a lot and would love to share and get to know teams like that. And, and what do you think about uh, these sort of, you know, uh, social clubs or, or communities that VCs are now backing, you know, Soho House valued it at 2 billion. I, 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 there seems to be Soho House for X or the sort of in-person communities that are uh, sort of reactions to the increasing sort of fragmentation and, and digitization of our of our relationships. You, do you think that uh, any of these sort of, you know, there's the wing, obviously, which we work for, for women. It, it, any of these um, are, are, are likely venture scale? Yeah, I think the ones that are are similar to Chief in a lot of ways and similar to the things you've talked about with Balaji and, you know, the community building that he's thinking through where you're really finding an underserved market. So the Soho house for kids or grandparents, I'm not smart enough to know that's underserved, but I do know that there's a huge drop-off in women uh, leadership at the VP level and at the C-suite level. And I really think that's for a reason. And so I think that's underserved market where if you build the right community and network, there are proven benefits. And so I think about what are the, what is the market that you're in and do you have the economic model that leads to venture scale with the right product offering? So on the economic model, we talked about retention, right? Where you have things like YPO that are 90 plus retention. I don't know that every, you know, Soho House for X is similar, but I do know that if you're serving a underserved community, like some of the ones that we've discussed, you should expect in that leadership and talent pool to have high retention and a very profitable business. And there are a few examples on the public side of businesses like Vistage, which is owned by Providence Equity Partners that, uh, you know, has hundreds of millions of revenue, 20K members plus, and throws off tens of millions of EBITDA. And so when I think about venture outcomes, I think about hundreds million, of millions of revenue and, you know, a proven path to get profitable. And I think you have to be playing in markets like that. But the nuance is really you know, less, I think, around there and more, what are the little things you do for your community and in your product to build that type of business, right? And so I think that's the part that a lot of these Soho House for X, as you call it, don't get right. And so you're not doing the right salon series or professional workshops or private dinners. And you're not leveraging events to drive awareness and membership sales because like we talked about, you know, word of mouth is a much better channel that scales in a, in a more efficient way. And so 
I think that combined with tying it to a digital component, which a lot of these businesses miss, is the other part of the equation where you want some level of one-to-one member messaging, right? As if this is going to be a truly third space, right? And for, you know, a consumer, there has to be that level of trust. And so that can be expressed through a digital application that's given to the entire community where there are private channels for some sort of need. It could be through a member site that's akin to the first round network that people talk about. But I do think you have to think about the product in a much more holistic way. And from the Soho House for X's that I've seen, they're generally more vanity plays for those members and uh, you know, status as a service, as opposed to, in my opinion, solving a real need in a profitable way with a better product. Yeah. In, a, in, in closing, is there any sort of request for startups for, for things that we haven't uh, discussed here or, th- or spaces or categories or, or even niches that you'd uh, be interested in seeing entre- more entrepreneurs uh, explore? Yeah, I think I've given you a lot, but you tell me. I think if any, if any teams are building brands and health and wellness around those categories, I'd love to chat with them. If folks are thinking about subscription-like models that peel off of Facebook in a way that whether it owns a psychographic or a life stage, I think that's particularly of interest to me. And owning a life stage in a way that is similar to gaming or death or weddings like Zola, we'd love to spend more time with. And so, you know, I, I talked a lot about those and SaaS as a network, and I think that'd be a great place to start. Perfect. Uh, my guest today has been Marco Demorales of TCG. Marco, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.